So let me kind of try to give you kind of a true analysis of what's out there. Um, first of all, I actually have it, I want to pull it up to make the point. If you go to the chart that has turnout rates by type of election, I think I'm going to start there and then come back for a second. This is one of the things that gets me about public polling as opposed to uh, private polling or political polling. First of all, public polling has been off a great deal um, because they listened to the Obama campaign after the 2012 election, where the Obama campaign said, we knew what the new electorate in America was, and we did a better job turning out the voters. And I kind of shook my head and said, well, both can't be true. Either your polling was exactly what the electorate is, and that's who showed up on election day, or you distorted that by doing a better job of turning out your voters, which is what so many campaigns are all about. But unfortunately, a lot of the public polls began pulling their samples based on a projection of what they thought the electorate was going to be rather than using tried and true techniques to do it. Um, one of the things we do in our, our surveys, those of you that have seen them before, is that we, um, we always screen out non-voters, which usually ends up being about 7-8% that say, I'm absolutely not going to vote in this election. And then we take everyone else in and interview them, even though we call it likely voters. The reason why we can call it likely voters is we then give a point system to voters based on age, based on education, based on uh, intensity to vote, and based on intensity for the candidate. So every respondent we have has a measurement scoring. And then I tell my IT guy, when I see my tables, which usually are about 900 pages long, that I want to see breaks at a 40%, 50%, 60%, 70% turnout and the total sample. I'm not picking which of those I'm looking at. I'm looking at all of them on every question so that I can see what the impact is of a lower turnout or a medium turnout or a high turnout. Because the job of polling is not to predict what's going to happen. The job of polling is to analyze where you are today and where you need to go in order to win. Um, and so we're looking at it much differently, and it drives me nuts when I see the sampling of some of these public polls, and they're all over the place, just literally all over the place, and with a lot of bias of the individual uh, person that's making the decision on the sampling. This is the reason why you can't do that, is that, and this is um, uh, the, the red margin um, is presidential years, the blue is non-presidential years. But this is what percent of uh, eligible adults vote in these elections. As you can see on the presidential, 61%, 62%, 59%, 60%. Think about those campaigns and all the rhetoric about who was doing better and who was getting out there vote and who was doing what. The numbers didn't change that much of what percent of Americans voted in the election. <coughs> If you look at the off-year elections, 2006, um, 41%, 2010, 42%, 2014, 37%. Those elections 
um, were elections where the intensity of the out party came into play. And in 2006, it worked against us by eight points. In 2010, we had a 10 point advantage. 2011, uh, in 2014, we had a, an 11 point advantage. But look at this past election, 50% turnout. We almost gained halfway to a presidential. Now, on election night, all the news media thinking that this was the big tide against Donald Trump uh, was talking about presidential level turnout. And I know you've heard it said a dozen times during the night. Now, was it higher? Yes, it was higher. Was it anti-Trump higher? No, it wasn't. What we saw going into the election is that, yes, um, and, and there were times that we were just wringing our hands. We, we at one point, before the tax code, we are at a 13-point deficit in terms of intensity against us by the out party. In most of 2018, it was running about 8%. And in the last month of the election, it closed to only 4%. The intensity of the Democrats did not keep going up. It was very high and traditionally as high as it should be. But what happened at the end is the intensity of Republicans came up. And so that extra 10% who voted in the last election were actually Republican voters voting, not Democratic voters voting, completely missing the point of the last election. And more specifically, where we saw examples of it. Now, did it help us in the suburbs? Look, the, the Democrats had enough suburban districts that had white married suburban women who had been leaning Republican in their voting, who didn't vote in 2016 because they had trouble with Trump, and actually came out and voted Democrat. We knew going into the election, our projections were we were going to lose 38, 39, 40 seats. We lost 40 seats. And it basically was because they had enough suburban districts that if they ran the table, they were going to win that many seats. But they didn't win many other places. And the thing that kind of unfortunately came true is there are a couple of districts that every cycle you kind of say, we not listening what was happening. The, probably the best example would be Russell in, in the uh, congressional district in Oklahoma City, kind of what I consider my home, home area. He did not go on TV till the last 10 days. He finished the campaign with $200,000 in the bank. $200,000 in Oklahoma City pays for a lot of TV. And he was like, I didn't know that it was going to be bad. And it's like, were, were you under a rock? <laughs> or you have people like um, uh, the president of the district, uh, Valdeo. Um, he ended up with almost 500000 in the bank. Now, he ran a campaign, but he was more worried about everyone around him who all lost than what was happening in his district. And I think that's unfortunate. But um, we did not lose... We had a great night in terms of the Senate. And part of the reason why is it wasn't suburban districts. It was Reagan country. I'm afraid it had Freudian slip. Boy, he'd be rolling over his grave. Um, uh, it was tr Trump country um, that they, the Republican voters came out. 
And there are two specific races that I saw that moved and totally changed in the last 10 days, last week of the election. And that was the governor's race in Ohio and the governor's race in Florida, where we had a huge turnout all of a sudden of, I wouldn't say rural quite, but more small town America fundamentalist Christians, who basically were a group of voters who didn't particularly like the persona of Trump, but had voted for him in 2016 on the promise of him bringing a more conservative Supreme Court. And guess what? He delivered. And so their intensity came up at the end because of Kavanaugh, and we quite offset a night that could have been much, much worse for us if it had been held a month before. And the only reason why I go into that is all the speculation of what's going to happen in the next election. Um, it, you, you have to be very careful. So let's go back to a couple of warning signs that we see on the front end. First of all, right direction, wrong track. Right direction, wrong track is a question that um, one of the things on many of the surveys we do, and certainly the battleground survey that I do with Sloan the Lake, um, part, the other question on surveys, we did polling for while Politico was involved with us on the battleground poll. And the, the relationship lasted less than six months because all they wanted was to ask questions of the day that they then could take and turn into political stories. And they didn't understand that if you don't ask questions the same way at the same point in the survey over a period of time, sometimes you don't know what you're getting in terms of the numbers. So I love watching these people go on and pontificate for hours about what one polling question means and it's the first time the question's ever been asked. This is a question that we know has a great deal of impact on a re-election campaign of the president. The concern on this 31% um, right track, 62% wrong track. Um, in this survey, 54% were strongly wrong track. So it is building some intensity again. Um, this is a question that over the last 20 years, we've only had two points where it has come under 50%. Uh, I'm sorry, under 60%. And that was right after 9-11 where we had a period of time where everyone was rallying. And quite frankly, right after the election of Obama, through the inaugural up until the time he started talking about health care, and then it went back up negative again. Um, those are the only two periods of time, except the last year. And in the last year, wrong track dropped down and hovered around 53, 54%. And everyone missed it. Everyone, we were certainly paying attention to it going into the election. But right after the tax vote, well, I can't even say that. It dropped when Trump was elected, right about the time he was sworn in. Uh, the inaugural. Then it started inching up again going into the tax fight, but then it dropped again. And it stayed flat in the, in the mid to low 50s through the entire 2018 campaign. This is the first time we've seen it inch back up again over 60%, and it inched back up during the shutdown. And so we do have to be concerned what people are picking up from the shutdown. 
Um, you also see a great deal of polarization on this. 89% of Democrats are saying the country's off on the wrong track. 62% of independents saying the country's off on the wrong track. And by the way, for all the talk about independence, and if you've talked to me at all in the, through the 2018 campaign, I always kind of tap down all the talk about independence because a lot of that drop-off from 60% to 40% in a presidential year to non-presidential year are independent voters and soft Democrats and soft Republicans, primarily independents. And they come roaring back in the next election. So paying attention in the presidential election, paying attention to them this year and next year is much more important than paying attention to them in 2017, 2018. Republicans, 29% um, saying wrong track and 25% of Trump voters. And for those of you that haven't heard me talk before, we really do kind of look at Trump voters, the Trump base, differently than we look at the Republican base. The, the press seems to treat it um, uh, very uh, nonchalantly, and they, they kind of interchange them for the same meanings. The Trump base is the 33-34% that um, liked him the day he got into the race. Their intensity of liking him went up, and it has remained at 32-33% throughout his entire presidency. <laughs> or, as I sometimes joke around, that is the group that if he shot someone on Fifth Avenue, they would still support him. There's another 11 or 12%, mainly Republicans, who don't like his persona, but like his policies. And I'm going to come back to one exception on that. Like his policies, and they um, choose to be supportive. So in times when they are hearing positive things about his agenda, as opposed to negative things about who he bashed in a tweet today, they get behind the president and they support him. Then there's another 11 or 12% that dislike his persona, like his policies, but put a priority on the persona. And they are more independents, more soft Democrats, soft Republicans, and more of the type of voters that will vote in this next election, but didn't vote in 2018. Um, and they are the ones that if you get a sole focus on policy, when you ask, what's his job approval on taxes or jobs or the economy, that's when he starts getting numbers over 50% because you're mentally asking that person, forget about the persona, just think about the issue, how is he doing on the issue? That's the group of voters when you combine all three that gets them to a majority. Those are the voters that every time he tweets something, I'm just beating my head against the wall, thinking, don't you guys see that if we just talk policy, you'd be knocking this out of the park. Um, so what you see are some of those Republicans in that wrong track that say the country's off on the wrong track because they don't like the style that they're saying of what's coming. And they are going to be a very important person are very important people on this. Um, by the way, uh, I said this went up during the shutdown. Um, this survey was conducted during the shutdown. Um, it's one of the things, it's one of the few surveys we did because most of the surveys we waited until after the shutdown was over so we could look at it. 
So next you get to his job approval, and, and, and um, here's where I want to, um, again, kind of explain things uh, that hopefully will be helpful. There is a huge difference with Donald Trump between job approval and his personal approval, his favorability of that. Um, the day Donald Trump announced in this race, he had a 55% unfavorable rating. The day he got elected, he had a 56% unfavorable rating. The only difference between announcing and the end of the campaign is as strongly unfavorable had gone over 50%. And by the way, I, I do want to take a break here on this. There has never been a presidential nominee for the party ever, ever, with over a 50% unfavorable rating going into the fall campaign. And in the last campaign in 2016, both candidates were not only over 50%, both candidates were over 50% strongly. No wonder so many people kind of scratch their head about the election. The highest, just to give you a, a feel, the highest, uh, Congressman, was, you want to guess who in the law and modern politics had a close to a 50% unfavorable? Your senator, Goldwater, was at 47%. The highest out of all those years of presidential campaigns. Now, Trump today has an unfavorable rating of 55.4%. Um, it's very interesting to look at a trend line of his job approval, which goes up and down. More talk about policy goes up. More talk about personality, it goes down. His, his um, I don't know how to equate this, his uh, favorability index is a flat line. It hasn't been a flat line for three years. Um, it just does not move. And so that serves as an anchor to him, but it also serves as he has that base, that Trump base, that he's always going to get in the 30s. There were periods of time where Obama and Bush um, dropped below 30% on their favorable. Trump has never done that for all the talk about how negative he is. Um, the concern on this survey is we saw, and what we saw in the public polling also, is that Trump's job approval, which had been hovering in the 40s, dropped below 40% for the first time. Um, and it was driven by the focus on his personality than a focus on issues. One of the things you'll see when we get into issues is if, if he would stop saying the wall and explain a little bit more specifically what he wants to do, it's amazing how the support level goes, goes for it. Talking about, um, I'm only going to put it in areas that are high crime areas where there really is a need for the wall. His support goes over 50% on the wall. But it's, it, it just has fallen into this trap, and you've seen him try to go back and forth on it during the shutdown, before the shutdown, after the shutdown. Well, call it whatever you want to. Well, he's back to calling it the wall. Um, somewhere in there, um, I think he got a sense that, in the, and it's the one thing I think he does have a sense of. He really has a sense of that base, that he has to say certain things. And I think he's right from this standpoint. 
he has to keep that base stirred up. <clears throat> because if he loses their intensity with them, which he appeared to be doing around Christmas time, right after the election, there are several polls that the strongly approve on his job approval dropped from the 30s down into the low 20s. And that was the first crack in the armor that we saw of Trump during that time. And during the shutdown, it's now shot back up to 34% in terms of its approval. So let me, since I thought, let me get a little bit into issues. Um, first of all, one of the things we, we, um, we, under, we have to understand from a polling standpoint is that when, when you ask, especially when we get later in what I call more messaging questions, is that um, you're making an assumption that you get full attention of voters on these issues. Um, that sometimes when you look at superficially what they're focused on, um, it could be disappointing that you think they should be more focused on issues than they are. Um, I think that's the wrong way to look at it. Um, one of the things I feel very strongly about, and have felt this for decades, is there is no such thing as a one-issue voter. As much as we treat it that way in so many of our campaigns, there is no such thing as a one-issue voter. Issues, and more importantly, the way we talk about issues, are brushstrokes that we are using to add on to the picture of who we are in contrast to who the Democrats are. And so those brushstrokes become very, very important that, number one, we're painting a consistent picture of us or mudding up the picture of the opponents. <clears throat> and understand that it's, you know, the, the only way you get a one-issue voter is if you are only talking about that one issue in the entire campaign. Because otherwise, they're getting kind of more of this blend of issues that paints a picture of what's there. That's where asking a question like this in terms of what's the most important problem you think Congress and the president should pay attention to. For all their complaining of you're not getting anything done, okay, where do you want to get something done? Think of it that way as opposed to picking that issue and saying that's the issue we need to do to get that group of voters. And what you see is, is kind of several different levels. First of all, um, I'm gonna jump ahead and kind of combine the first and the second choice. There are two issues that jump up in looking at first and second choice. 42% uh, mention immigration, and 40% mention improving healthcare. And we're gonna get into both of those a little bit in later questions. You also then have right behind that, 35% saying the economy and protecting jobs. And you had 34% saying first or second mention balancing the federal budget and reducing the national debt. Now, anyone that's following where we are in the budgeting knows and, and where we are in the economy, we can probably push the economy and jobs in terms of an ec economic message. On budget and deficit, I'm kind of surprised that has not surfaced in the discussion about where are we on the deficit spending right now. Because there, there, some of these budgets are downright scary in terms of what things we're putting in, just trying to address all the issues that people think are important. But then you also see um, protecting the environment is only at 19% combined, 
funding improvements to roads, highways, and, and tunnels, 14%. I think if we would have said infrastructure, it might have been a little bit higher. Um, and then campaign finance reform, 7%, which I think is enforcement. Um, I think one of the things that we need to address at some point is we need to take off all limits to candidates, and we need to do away with super PACs. Um, sorry if I'm offending anyone in the room. But um, uh, super PACs are, are, as much as anyone, causing the wink, wink, nod, nod, I'll do the dirty stuff, you run a positive campaign, and then they end up spending more money than the campaign. Imagine, how many here have been a campaign manager before? I mean, imagine what it's like, just if you're a campaign manager, and not only do you hope to control 50% of the budget, but you're controlling less than 25% of the budget. You have the opponent, you have the opponent's super PACs, you have your super PACs, and you're only controlling 25% of everything that's being set out there, at best. Um, but it doesn't even rank half as much as the environment, which the Democrats are always talking about. So um, the, the interesting thing I want to mention about um, infrastructure, and again, it, um, it becomes even more to light when you think about the turnout in 2016. One of the underreported things in the turnout of 16 was that, yes, the African-American vote was down about a percent of the total votes cast. The white vote came up that percent. The Hispanics were about the same. But there was a huge shift of white suburban voters down by 12 points. Uh, down, I'm sorry, down by eight points. And white, small-town America white voters turning out at a 12% higher margin. There, again, you always have to think about this. They always talk about the electorate like 100% participating. You always have to think about who are the real people participating in which elections. And that was one of the things that we saw that step away of white suburban married women. And by the way, I always emphasize that. Um, it drives me nuts, the people that go out and generalize and talk about women like they're a monolithic voter. I mean, if, if I had done that, I probably would have been killed by my wife. Um, that, that we have been winning the white female vote in every presidential election, including the last one. The last presidential election. Um, we lost them in the last election for the first time. We've been winning a majority of married women for every election for the last 20 years. And married white women We've been, we've, been, we've been winning by a margin of about 20% in the presidential elections. So the gender gap that, that I think has always been overgeneralized about is really more a racial gap and a married gap than it is a gender gap when you look at it. But it's too easy for them to say, oh, you're, you're losing women because you're losing this, uh, this group as a whole. Um, Next question we had here was, was kind of a question about um, who do you blame? And I kind of, I know I laughed kind of when uh, Jim brought this up. Um, this is no surprise, and I think we've wasted way too much time on it. I mean, the one assumption you have to have as a Republican 
is if government shuts down, we will be blamed for it. Period. Democrat presidents, Republican presidents, Democrat Congress, Republican Congresses, every time the government closes and shuts down, we get blamed for it. Because the assumption is we don't care about people as much as others. I mean, it was one of the things we saw in the 2012 campaign. Romney beat Obama in the 2012 campaign on every issue measurement from health care, which was supposedly Obama's issue, to foreign affairs, to taxes, to the economy, to jobs. Every one of those issues, he was beating Obama in. Obama beat him by more than 30 points on the question, cares about people like me. Again, it's not always issues that are driving these campaigns, nor is it going to be who shut down the government. But if it shuts down again on Friday, we shouldn't waste any time deciding who's going to get blamed for it. No matter how it's manipulated, how it's done. A couple of questions we asked on, um, on government. Um, this one can be seen as kind of cynical uh, and getting the cynical voters, but uh, do you believe government's part of the problem or part of the solution? And as you can see, we've been hovering about two-thirds of Americans in every poll we've done and asked this question, and I could take it back another 20 years, and it's going to be basically in that range. Um, uh, if you look at... Um, who is in that component part on whose problem and solution, you do, do see some philosophical breakouts. I mean, Republicans are much higher on part of the problem. Democrats, much less. Independents actually on this question lean much more in our direction as opposed to the direction uh, of the Democrats. Um, it also has an age component that the older you are, the more you see, and probably because the more you've seen of government, you see government as part of the problem. We then asked, do you think the federal government is doing too much, the right amount, or not enough to solve the problems facing the country? 75% are now saying not enough. Now, that was that's kind of a surprise that it's risen to that point when Trump is at least trying to talk about his agenda more than show his persona. But obviously something's not getting through on that. This is a warning sign for the incumbent White House that you see a growing number of people saying government's not doing enough. And then this next question, which was, um, I, I have to admit, the first time we've asked this question uh, in any poll, uh, but I think it's a great question. Any of you, do you think enough politicians in Washington, there are enough politicians in Washington willing to go against their political party when they think it's the right thing to do? 81% said yes. A majority of, pardon me, uh, uh, said no, no, they don't think they're doing enough. I'm sorry, I said that the wrong way. But a majority of Democrats, Republicans, and Independents, overwhelming majority, feel that there's not enough of that. Now, the interesting thing, if you kind of watch, and I, I, I kind of followed some of these discussions out there about a third party, possibility of a third party. Um, uh, the unfortunate thing about a third party is that is there room for maybe the fringes on both ends to be knocked away and for someone to come up from the center 
and create a new third party? Yes, um, theoretically. But the problem is that's not where the independents always come from. They always come from the fringes. And, and as importantly, in this situation, um, I told John Kasich this. You know, don't run against Trump. Can't beat him. Not that he's the 80% everyone talks about, but he certainly would take 60% in every Republican primary in the country, number one. And number two, you running against Trump from this angle probably just guarantees he gets reelected. And the one person that probably guarantees that he's not reelected is someone coming from the other side, like a Schultz. And that would be a very interesting kind of mix to look at. So, real quickly, let's go through some of these. Infrastructure funding. We just tried three different ways of looking at the funding that's discussed out there. Um, there is, uh, you know, increasing federal tax on gasoline, 67% no. Allowing states and local governments to build more toll roads, 55% no. But there was kind of an implication that there was a cost involved in it, of course. Um, changing user fee based on the amount of miles that a vehicle, vehicle travels, 76% less. Um, uh, I always think when voters kind of start pushing for something, be careful what you ask for, because very seldom is it exactly what they're asking for. Um, more importantly, I thought it was very interesting on election night in 2016, all the press was pushing this Infrastructure seems to be the one thing that Democrats and Republicans can unify on going forward. Really? Um, you've, Congressman, you, you've seen fights over infrastructure. It's always small town America, rural America versus the inner city. I mean, it would probably be the most contentious fight you could see if a infrastructure came forward because I guarantee you Donald Trump is going to always have in the back of his head who his real base is and play to it, which is only going to aggravate it that much more. We then spent some time looking at health care. Um, and we started off with a question, do you think it's gotten better, gotten worse, or stayed about the same? And the plurality response was uh, gotten worse, 40%, 26% saying that it had stayed the same. So if you looked at both of those as a negative response, you kind of see where talking about healthcare very often kind of brings up those negative comments. Um, what was interesting is 67%, 67% of low-income voters said healthcare had gotten worse. The very voters this was supposed to help are the highest response of not enough has been done. And that's why they, they're saying it's gotten worse. Which again makes it a very hard problem to deal with because if you thought we went too far in promising what it would do before, to really satisfy them, you would have to go off the edge of the cliff. What was interesting is small uh, working families who work for small businesses <clears throat> felt it had gotten worse. And that, I believe, would, should be our target. I think one of the things I loved about the tax bill that passed last year, it always 
kind of made me wonder what the Republican Party was really all about when we always focused on big business tax cuts and we never discussed small business tax cuts. And for the first time, we integrated small business. And guess where majority of Americans work today? It's not in big business. It's in small business. In fact, for many uh, middle-class Americans, that's you're talking about their business um, there. So um, I think on health care, that's the group that we need to kind of keep a constant eye on. And if we get into a discussion about health care, integrate into that the discussion about what happened on the tax structure. So um, we then went through a series of questions, ending Obamacare and replacing it with a new free market-based health care system, uh, even split. That's a philosophical split, 47 to 48. Keeping Obamacare in place and making some bipartisan improvements to it was the one thing that got the best response at a 58%. And in fact, 69% of Republicans said, yes, it's this. Keeping Obamacare as it is with no changes, 70%, no. Replacing Obamacare with Medicare for all system, where all Americans would get health insurance from the federal government. Um, 73, uh, 49% no, but the key group on this one is 53% of seniors now. We won the Tennessee Senate race in the last election because the Democrat just jumped off the cliff at the beginning of the campaign about being for Medicare for all. And seniors, they, they, they're hearing enough bad things about the Social Security system and Medicare and being properly funded and where it stands. Last thing they want is a, a bunch of these young millennials standing in line with them for their health care. <laughs> um, on the next page, we looked at priorities. And again, it's the problem with health care. I mean, this should show you more than anything that it all comes down to cost. That the number, number two are the two responses were reducing health care insurance. 33%, 59% combined first and second matchup, and making prescription drugs more affordable, 29% and 57% total. Making it easier to comparison shop for healthcare was only 8% and the combined response 18%. And then you had a middle response of improving access to healthcare, which is often talked about when we talk about healthcare, what needs to happen, and letting doctors and patients drive the decision of making healthcare, 35% first and second mention. So again, the thing that really bubbles up to the top and needs to be, if it can be, and the question is can it be, needs to be the real discussion in healthcare. Um, a little bit on the wall. We have till what, 1.30? Okay, let me go through this quickly because I want to go to some questions. Um, uh, the wall, uh, building a wall on the southern border of Mexico, 55% no, but 88% of Republicans yes, 92% of Democrats no, and again, remember how, how important I said independents were, 68% no. <clears throat> this is not presented this way a good issue for us in the presidential <laughs> campaign. Good for the base. Providing illegal immigrants who are brought here as minors with permanent legal status, 63%, yes. 
increasing security measures on our borders in several ways, like drones and increasing the number of border control agents, 82%, yes. And we did have a question on another survey where we asked um, about limiting the wall to just sections that have the highest crime rate and the highest problem with drugs coming across the border. And again, support for it went up into the 60s. So that's kind of where the voters are, but you have to give them, to, to get them to buy in on the concept of what's there, you have to give them a little bit more information than just build a wall. In fact, uh, there, the, I, I think there was a focus group we were doing a couple weeks ago that the suggestion from one of, one of the participants was, why doesn't he put it on the Mexican side and just call it foreign aid and then take their foreign aid money and pay for it? <laughs> um, I mean, he, he just really has the, the voters out there thinking about a lot of different things. Um, we then got into trade. Um, and obviously, uh, when we ask about impact, 36% says say that it will have some impact, uh, or have, will have no impact, 42% negative, only 17% positive. This is probably the one thing that I would point to in the agenda of Donald Trump, that there is a mismatch with Republican voters in everything they know about the issue, whether it's superficial or in detail. And the only reason why he kind of locks people in, to some extent, to be supportive, is um, he has sold it pretty well, number one. Number two, we haven't seen much of the pain yet from uh, bad trade policy or trade war. And more importantly, I think those that do know more about the issue, they know that the real issue here is not trade, but the issue is uh, intellectual property. And that if that gets weaved in and hidden in the slide and something done about it, then you start pulling in people, more people to kind of support it. All right, let me end it there. Um, we did have a couple of questions on private information. Um, I thought it was interesting after we asked this question, um, the impact of what, um, and there's some people really kind of studying this and watching it very closely now. Uh, the impact of all this focus on private information, what's being done with it in the various co companies, is actually forcing those companies that have existed for the last 20 years kind of on a parallel track where they haven't stepped on each other's toes. And what you're seeing is you're beginning to see um, Google, too, grab some things that Facebook does, and Facebook grabs some things that LinkedIn does. Um, I think they're looking to expand their economic model. They're looking at taking over the other companies and fighting with the other companies as opposed to selling our information out there. So maybe they're getting the message. I don't know that the result of that is necessarily going to be good without some fights. So let me end it there. What can I answer for you? If I have it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.